Wednesday, March 9th. It's a little late for us. It's quarter past seven. Sorry, we were so late, but we're still glad to have Michael McKay here, our Ukraine expert. Good to have you with us again, Michael, as the story goes from, you know, from unbelievable to kind of just distressing at the highest level tonight. Um, you know, we've really yes. seen the very worst of Vladimir Putin. If there was any doubt mm-hmm. about uh, his depravity, if there's any doubt about the fact that there are crimes against humanity taking place in Ukraine, those should be removed right away because they yeah. clearly is what's going on. There's a, a scene in Mariupol where a maternity hospital and a children's hospital was bombed. You know, one of these giant thousand pound bombs uh, that really took out just the whole center of this hospital complex, burying uh, young children alive, we hope, at least under the rubble and injuring 17 people. You know, it's just a traumatic scene and you can't think of a weaker, softer, more civilian target than that. So there is no doubt that he is doing this on purpose, that he is going after these particular locations because he can, because he wants to strike fear in the hearts of all Ukrainians. There was an interview tonight with the uh, deputy mayor of Mariupol who said that the death toll had gone up to about a thousand and was climbing, he thought, three or four times that by the time they'd done the actual count. So it could be as many as three to 4,000 people dead in Mariupol which is unbelievable because the official death toll right now is, is what it's in the, it's still in the 500s or somewhere in the, in the hundreds, right? And across the country. Now we're talking about one city, one port city of Mariupol accounting for could be 3,000, 4,000 deaths. And the destruction there is unbelievable. I do have some video. I'm going to try to find a few as we talk a little bit here, but uh, you know, this is um, shocking for all of us just watching from a distance, but this is a country, you know, very well, Michael, this is a country you visited for over three decades. You know, it's, really well. It must be devastating and worrying watching all of this. Yes. It's overwhelming. It's very distressing. You know, I have to keep calm to be able to, you know, express myself uh, beyond just outrage, for sure. And tell me about those scenes today. I mean, it certainly seems like a turning point. I keep hoping it is. I keep hoping that the next atrocity is when the people that matter, the people that make decisions wake up because I've just been saying for so long, there is no limit. With each atrocity we're shocked by, there will be another, and it will be worse. You know, me, uh, along with millions of Ukrainians, are just saying, wake up. The cries of what desperation do are... Except, except show you yeah. what's right in front of us. The, the cries of desperation have gotten much more desperate. Clearly, the, the mood on the ground is we can't do anything until the skies are closed, as they put it. And, you know, and then it really needs to happen. How it happens is a whole other question, but that it needs to happen is undoubted. We can't have entire cities obliterated in the way he's doing with these thousand pound bombs and then also targeting these civilian populations and then starving them. I mean, the idea of in, in this day and age of not allowing people to eat and I mean, it's the height of cruelty. It's, it's inhumane. And the Russian people certainly aren't like that. So, why is this Russian leader acting like a barbarian in the middle of a uh, 21st century? It's, it's, it's ridiculous. It's, I mean, it's insane. I think you raised a very good point there, Zev. You said that we have to realize that something has to be done and then talk about how to do it. Mm-hmm. And I think it's really important that we have our priorities straight because what I see is a discussion about the how and the oh, it's impossible, and this is why we're not going to do it, Mm. before the clear discussion about we must stop this. 
Right. Then get to the discussion about how. That's because the we must stop it implies we're going to war with Russia, which is what, you know, Russia wants and desire probably. And it's um, it's not something that NATO necessarily wants to do. I mean, I get what you're saying, but it is a huge factor. You know, World War Three is not something you just lightly step into. And this is not lightly stepping into it because you have to defend these people. But like, so, a- like myself and so many of others, it's not that we are going to have a choice about stepping into it. Right, we we find into. ourselves in it right now. And if we choose to call it World War Three, then we're distancing ourselves from it and saying, oh, but what about our imagined World War Three? Mm. The one that so many people grew up with from the Cold War. So if we put that aside and say, we're actually in a large war, mm-hmm. you know, and we'll let the historians say what to call it. Mm-hmm. And Russia is the driver of this war. It is the aggressor state. And if we say, oh, it's only at war with Ukraine, we're making a fundamental error. We're ignoring what Russia says, that it's a, at war with the West. And what it does, which is to fight a vicious kinetic war in Ukraine and what we can call loosely a hybrid war everywhere else in the world. But right. don't so, think that that yeah. distinction is going to be maintained. Yeah, you can so not- I want to say that we're already in a large war and it's of a scale that we have not seen for 80 years. Mm-hmm. And of course, what you're saying there is so true. We don't need any more details of how uh, Russia attacked the United States. I mean, we know that the United States has been under attack by Russia in much the same way as Ukraine has been under attack by Russia for, you know, the better part of the last, let's call it seven years, eight years, but probably longer. So there's no doubt in my mind that we are seeing in Ukraine today uh, what might happen tomorrow in the United States. You know, we are are not that far away from Russia when you really think about it. And there's a lot of opportunities for them to mess with the United States in terms of war. There's Alaska they've declared an interest in, not to mention the fact that, you know, they've clearly, as one newspaper analyst put it today, they're already prepared the American nation for the war that they're going to bring to America through the Trump years. Absolutely. And through all this they prepared their this, own nation. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and the American um, nation. Well, yes. The, the, the point about that is it is the pace quick enough. Mm. for the United States to defend itself. Right. Um, that, I don't know. I think people have to realize that every line has been erased and every line that we say still exists, like, oh, NATO versus non-NATO or nuclear versus non-nuclear also does not exist. I mean, let's look at what has happened just in the past 14 days going from an offensive against the Ukrainian army to switch to a whole-scale slaughter of civilians. Mm-hmm. You know, in other words, setting aside all the rules of war, bombing hospitals, bombing schools, bombing uh, senior centers as deliberate targets, seizing two nuclear facilities, Zaporizhia and the uh, decommissioned uh, Chernobyl. Mm-hmm. Chernobyl today the Russians cut off the power. 
the International Atomic Energy Agency says that they expect radiation leaks because now the cooling has failed on the sarcophagus around the destroyed uh, reactor. Unbelievable. If it is not turned on. At Zaporizhia, the largest nuclear power plant in Europe, they have tortured the staff there and are preparing some atrocity. The Russians are prepping a chemical warfare attack using the same strategy they used in Syria to say that the Ukrainians are going to do it and then talking about areas of the country that they actually already control, and of course, which from which they're going to launch this attack. Yeah. So you've been creating Just the premise the, uh, that the Ukrainians actually did it, but of course it's not going oh, to be of course, the Ukrainians. Of course, there's always this uh, uh, Czechist uh, active measure element to all these things. Right, which no one ever believes. Today, this is the largest city they captured. The Russians have rolled, you know, right past their offensive troops are their National Guard troops, uh, equivalent of the SS coming in behind the Wehrmacht mm. in the early stages of World War II. And uh, today they arrested uh, 400 people, and it's expected that there will be some atrocity in Kherson. There is it's no just, limit. There is no there limit. Is no and it seems that it's going to escalate. It, you know, it's going to get worse and worse because he's not even trying to do a surgical strike anymore. That clearly no, did not... They admitted that, that today succeeded. that they use thermobaric weapons. You're right. So can you explain what those things are, those thermo... Say, say the name again. It's a bomb mm-hmm. that uh, bursts with fuel in the air. So there's mm-hmm. vapor and then the vapor is ignited. It then sucks all the oxygen out of the atmosphere in the area. So it basically turns the air into a large bomb. It's pretty much close to the... Uh, largest explosion that you can have uh, short of a tactical nuclear weapon. Wow. Force must be unbelievable. And we're looking at these pictures now. This is what the maternity hospital in Mariupol looks yeah. like now. It could be that one of those bombs was there. Look at the enormous amount of damage. Uh, I believe it was a, a dumb bomb. Uh, okay. You see, the, okay. the Russians have run out of guided munitions, mm. uh, missiles that, Isn't that amazing? to run out. Missiles that can be actually uh, sensibly aimed. So this is a, a large dumb bomb, such as was dropped in World War II. And look at the, the depth of that. That was at least 30 feet wide. Maybe it's even 30 yeah. feet deep. I don't know. It seems to have such an impact, such a huge force that it's uh, obliterated absolutely everything underneath it and uh, to some depth. You know, these are horrific scenes and a really uh, heartbreaking video, which I will show you hopefully by the time we get to the end of the show, of one of the Ukrainian forces arriving at the hospital and just running from room to room. And you could tell he's looking for the signs of human life. And he thankfully he doesn't see any in the hospital itself, but you can tell the panic in his breathing and he's running around trying to see if he can, you know, find some life there. Uh, thankfully, there was no, there was no bodies Either, of course, they had escaped, obviously, to some sort of bunker, but that was right there where that uh, bomb site that we just looked at was. You know, yesterday I was showing this one map, but it wasn't nearly, I don't think, accurate enough for to really understand, you know, what Putin might be up to. And I don't know if this is any easier to understand it in, but just explain to us, if you can, Mariupol is on the very right here, just above the Sea of Azov there. You know, it says the port of Mariupol. It's in between yeah. this yellow, reddish area, top right, and then the red area next to Crimea, near the bottom. People are saying that is not a strategic asset for the Russians. But of course, it is a, a strategic asset for the Russians. Look where it is. I mean, it's right there, the Sea of Azov, at the very intersection of what could be uh, Russia, which certainly is Russia to some extent on one side. But, you know, all of that Sea of Azov is important territory for Putin because it connects a land bridge between 
the areas of Donbass and section just above Crimea. So explain more about what's going on here and how significant this little strip of land where Mariupol is, is so important and why they're doing, probably why they're doing such a big job of trying to destroy every element of Ukrainian existence there. We need to recall that this has been an objective for the Russians uh, since 2014, when their invasion forces came from the east they surged across the border into uh, Donetsk region, uh, which is just to the right of Mariupol there. Mm -hmm. And they did this a few months after they had invaded and occupied Crimea. And so what they were trying to do is to take it from the east. But the Ukrainians stopped them uh, east of the city, and it had been that way for the last seven years. So now they were barely able to break out from the east but by coming from Crimea, they were able to take all of that coastal area of the Sea of Azov. They were able to take the other Ukrainian port called Berdyansk. And now they're going after the largest uh, Ukrainian port on the Sea of Azov, which is Mariupol. It would turn the Sea of Azov into a Russian lake. So an international body of water would stop being that uh, effectively. And and choke off Ukraine's economy to a large extent, because, you know, Odessa does let them enter the Black Sea. Let's say they are successful in capturing Odessa because we know that's on their to do list here. The goal is to choke this country, suspected around the world as an independent country, has, has been for 30 years, to choke it off from its main artery of economic trade. I mean, this is where a lot of the wheat in the country. That's true. And that that was the objective for the past few years. But Mm -hmm. I think now we have to say we have to go beyond that. Yes, of course, the objective is to uh, choke off the economy, but the real objective is to destroy Ukraine. And we can see that the Putin regime is now all in on that. So Mm. it would not be enough for them to leave any part of Ukraine independent and not under their control at this point. Now, they have not made the moves on Kiev that we'd expected. They've been pushed back from there. In fact, when you look at this other map that I just took off, I'll bring it back up. I mean, it does seem like they are very focused on this coastline. They're not necessarily uh, moving into these other areas. I'm not saying that they won't and that there is not a lot of damage in these other areas and and a lot of missiles being poured on them. But the intensity of the attack seems to be based in this one zone along the coast Mm. here. Well, about that, actually, the Russians have devoted most of their forces to the north, to Mm. the attack on Kiev because it is the most important to them. But correspondingly, the Ukrainians had devoted most of their defense there. Mm. So I think we should look at what's happening in the north as being the greatest failure of the Russian offensive and the greatest success of the Ukrainians. Mm -hmm. And what's happening in the south is actually a loose control. There's only one significant city, which is Kherson, but the main prize, which is actually Odessa, remains completely out of reach. Mm. They've been fighting over Mykolaiv, a city uh, just a little bit to the northeast, for almost a week now and making no progress at all. So what you look at in the south, let's say lighter battlefront, because the Russians have devoted fewer resources to it, basically because they all have to come from Crimea. And that is a limitation for them. Mm -hmm. And Whereas they can devote massive forces to the north and northeast because they can come from the Russian Federation and they can come from Belarus. So the main battle actually is in the north, and that's where it's been the poorest. This lighter battle in the south has had 
more success in terms of territory on the map, but in the sense of getting actual gains, very little. And I would mm. say with the exception of the fact that they seized, seized the Zaporizhia nuclear power station and have the opportunity to create an environmental catastrophe such as the world has never seen. Can you tell me, have you been to this coastline? Can you describe what Odessa is like? Because I hear it's a particularly pretty uh, important historic city. Oh, very historic city. Let's say a 300-year history, very cosmopolitan. Before the occupation by the Bolshevik Russians, it was just so multicultural. Uh, Ukrainians, Russians, Jews, Germans, Greeks, Armenians, incredibly cosmopolitan kind of city, very worldly uh, as a port. If you look at it now, it is largely Russian speaking. Mm -hmm. And until this war started eight years ago, uh, kind of slightly pro-Russian as well right. in terms of pro-Russian federation. But that has completely changed now. It's often, it's referred to as a UNESCO site. I don't even know what a UNESCO site is, but as a UNESCO heritage site, do you know what it is? Because of, because of the heritage, uh, right. you know, beautiful opera house mm -hmm. uh, in that Ukrainian Baroque architecture style that is just so stunning to look at. I'm saying that because and, I think it's important for people to realize that these are incredibly important cities that are being bombed into uh, oblivion here. I mean, Mariupol is maybe not a spectacular example of one of these cities because it has a lot of that Soviet architecture, but still, it's one of these beautiful old cities. And uh, as is Kharkiv, mm -hmm. and we in North America would love to have cities with such historic architecture and also such beautiful boulevards and, and embodying a certain kind of way of life, that these places are just getting bombed completely into submission and into nothing. Yeah, and if you look at... Uh like there are sites around Mariupol that were Greek colonies mm -hmm. in ancient times. So they go back almost 3,000 years. Right. And uh, also the uh, Scythian culture, even before that. So, you know, incredibly rich history and culture and importance, I would say, to the West. Now, Putin hasn't only been doing all this in the parts of Ukraine that are mostly well known. He's also been doing a similar kind of thing in Moldova which is in this uh, Transnistria area. What is mm -hmm. going on in Transnistria and why is that important? As the uh, uh, Soviet Union was breaking up, the Russians intervened in a, let's say, civil war that was happening in Moldova. Mm -hmm. And they ended up in a region, this uh, sliver on the uh, eastern side of Moldova on the uh, east bank of the Dniester River. That's mm -hmm. a river, big river that goes north and south and drains into the Black Sea. And they've been there ever since. And what the Russians call peacekeepers, of course, they're not peacekeepers at all, are in fact an army of occupation. And it's actually quite small, but just a sign of where things are now, because of the losses that the Russians have suffered in the offensive in that area around Odessa, and you have on your map Kherson, because of the tremendous losses there, Ukrainian military intelligence assesses that the Russians may be uh, ready to deploy these Transnistria Russian uh, occupation soldiers. It would be about 800 soldiers, mm. so uh, not significant, but I think that speaks to the desperation That's of the certainly. Russians at this point. I mean, they certainly are not stopping. There's, there's no doubt about it. I mean, this oh, is no. a... They, they wouldn't hold back and yeah. say, oh, that would be attacking from yet another country. Uh, that would be attacking the furthest west. Uh, yeah. That would be attacking uh, just 
just slightly across the border from Romania, mm-hmm. a NATO member. None of that holds back Russia. Your explanations are fantastic and interesting. And there's also so many questions uh, from the audience. I'm going to, if you don't mind, sure. let me just quickly get through some of these and see if they, uh, what they are saying here on I'm still not sure Mike understands that if we directly support Ukraine, that we end up in both third world war and a nuclear confrontation. I understand that that's a risk and that this is a risk in all diplomacy and all conflict Mm -hmm. uh, for the past almost 80 years. So the question is, how do we manage this? Because that is what we've had to do in international relations in all of our lifetime. How do we manage it? And the word about directly support, it shows a distinction that we make. Direct support would be what? Uh, Shooting down a Russian bomber with a non-Ukrainian fighter jet uh, versus indirect support, giving the Ukrainians a fighter jet and painting it in their colors. And I'm saying that this distinction does not make a difference to the enemy, Russia. It does not change a calculation about nuclear war or non-nuclear war. It does not change a calculation about World War III, which again is a definition we make and not one that the enemy has. So, I think um, there's, a, there's, a, there's a trigger point that they will look for. If they have it, they'll use an excuse. If they, okay, you know, if so they, why do we think that? Why because that's the way they do. <laughs> that's the way they do things. They're always looking for an excuse to do something. Uh, you know, they, they make find it themselves an excuse anyway. And if they don't find it, they'll make it up. Probably. They I mean, I'm not, I agree with you. It's not that big a. It's not that Ukraine big a is a Nazi regime to attack mm. it. Yeah, I know. They're denazifying Ukraine. Yeah, and then demilitarizing it. Which is, how can you say that after all the bombardment that they've done? And that's in the country since mm-hmm. they started. So, I mean, it's completely unlegitimate. You know, um, Andrew wants to know rationally, but they will not. Andrew is saying uh, not to take anything away from the women and children, babies, but please also consider the hundreds of thousands of animals, thousands of farms, zoos, rescue organizations, pets, and 50 plus thousand street dogs. In fact, that is a big point. The the city of Kiev has, has been struggling with its animal population in the, in the zoo there. It's going to be left to die, it seems. It's, uh, Andrew's was saying the animals also have, are having a slow death due to lack of food. Yeah, absolutely. Um, is Canada providing drones to collect aerial imagery? Can someone not provide a military drone for bombing Ukraine to use too? I think they are, in fact, uh, drones that are being used from Turkey, if I'm not mistaken. And the Canadian cameras, I guess, being attached to those drones to allow for better viewing of the The drones being provided by Turkey are combat aerial drones. Mm. Uh, these are the ones that... Uh, can uh, destroy tanks and armor. As for what Canada is providing, there is an airlift underway from Canada going from uh, Trenton in Ontario to, uh, I believe, Poland. And it's pretty much nonstop. And what Canada is sending is very specialized equipment like sniper gear, sniper rifles, night scopes. Canada has a very good special operations force, and we're sending them that equipment. That's what Ukrainians need. That's what Canada can provide. I believe Canada is doing the right thing in what we're doing. Uh, some very specialized equipment. But not the no-fly zone from Canada. I'm just being a little facetious there. Um, Canada on its own does not have that capability. <laughs> yes, I don't think so. Um, 
let's uh, let's take a look at some history here because you know yesterday we hinted at the fact that we're going to talk about Novo Russia, and uh, I'm hesitant to do this because I don't want to give Putin any any credibility for his arguments that you know this is territory that was in fact considered part of the Russian Empire at one point. Definitely not considered a majority Russian part of the world because it was always a Ukrainian people that lived there, but it was at one point considered part of the Russian empire. And he claims in his uh, wisdom that this is what he wants to do. He wants to reunite Nova Russia. So you can sort of see that's what he is trying to do because when you look at this map, keep this map in mind, as you look at uh, what's going on in the Eastern part of Ukraine here along this coastline at Luhansk, Donetsk, Crimea, all the way down to Odessa. And then I will show you what Nova Russia looked like in uh, a 1764 to 1917. And then you can see that same sort of area, but wider, but going all the way down to Odessa and along the border there with Moldova, all the way around to the Crimea, back through the Sea of Azov. That whole area was uh, considered, it had another name. In fact, Nova Russia is just the Russian name for it, but it was considered part of the historical Russian empire. Now they didn't have it for all these years. They didn't have it from 1764 to 1917. They had it on and off throughout all these years. And in 1917, it became part of Ukraine, which was fine for them because when the Soviet Union took over Ukraine, it just became part of the Soviet Union. So it was back part of the Russian Empire. However, when Ukraine left the Soviet Union, it took Nova Russia with it because it belonged to Ukraine. And this is part of the upset that Putin has is that, you know, this is the Russian, what he views as Russian, although clearly there's only Ukrainians that live there, but he views as, uh, I mean, there were 30,000 Russians to be fair, but not hundreds of thousands as they were uh, Ukrainians. He views this as his territory because, hey, our empire was once there. Ludicrous thinking, of course, because the empires were once everywhere. And if we wanted to do that, we'd be back in you know, the century, but we're not. But talk a little bit about Nova Russia if you know much about it. I found some interesting things about it today, but I'm interested to hear your thoughts. Nova Russia is an invention of the Putin regime. It never existed historically. As you said, it wasn't called that at the time. And this is a project of Russian intelligence and security agencies after Putin came to power in 1999. He basically resolved on his project to conquer Ukraine in the late 2000s. Uh, this was as he was uh, doing his best to bring Yanukovych to power. He didn't care how it happened. If it happened with a puppet government of Yanukovych in any way, as long as Ukraine ceased to be a free and independent country. And as the plan for the invasion of Crimea was being created in a really determined way, starting when Yanukovych came to power in 2010, a lot of people say, oh, it was about the Maidan revolution. No, it had nothing to do with that. That was just an opportunity to engage that invasion. So this Nova Russia became this name for an ideological cover for the Russian invasion and attempted conquest of Ukraine. And when I have to push back Ukraine, a little bit there. I it have was to push back they gave to, to the parts of the invasion that were outside Ukraine. So this isn't really, I'm not saying it hasn't been, you know, reformulated in, as an intelligence operation in recent years, but it, I mean, Catherine the Great with the United Kingdom, you know, colonized parts of this area. They called it Nova Russia. And, you know, it describes this very area as being Crimean Kanata or whatever it's called. But it talks about, you know, this very specific, these very cities as being part of the Odessa, Dnipro, Kherson, Mikoslyav, and Sevastopol. All of these were, you know, part of Catherine's conquest. And Catherine was a 
she was quite a conqueror. She that's what she did. And it's not hard to imagine that she would have gone into the side of the Black Sea to look for territories to conquer and with the blessing of the United Kingdom to boot. So, you know, it's the same weird claims to say that Alaska was part of Russia, but there was a part of time when Alaska was part of Russia. So, you know, it may not be relevant to the world right now, but it's historically true that parts of this territory were conquered by Catherine the Great. Or am I wrong? I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. Yes. Yes. Parts of it were conquered by Catherine the Great. So this, but you're saying that the uh, concept of it being reunited and being repopulated by Russians is a new sort of uh, Putin reimagining of the future based on uh, of the past. Fair enough. So all of this was really interesting when I did this today because I was reading as well. Somebody mentioned to me that you know within Russia, the Orthodox Church is very much in favor of returning to a monarchy of late. You know they're very very positive about this idea of returning to the Russian monarchy, the Russian czar. And so it came as a bit of a surprise to me that there is actually a Romanov now living in Moscow. And I was like, well, how did I miss that? It turns out that the, Mr. Romanov, I'm not sure, I'll get you his name in a second, had a wedding last year, the first in 100 years in St. Petersburg. There he is, his great-grandson of Nicholas, who died, of course, as the last Tsar. They've been living in exile, the Romanovs, for quite some time. But then he returned in 2019 to Moscow. I had not heard a beep about this. But, you know, the good people at uh, Town & Country, which do great wedding coverage, tell us that, that, in fact, this is exactly what happened. So I'll read you some of what they say. And while I do that, did you know that there was a Romanov back in Moscow? Mm -hmm. Yes. And uh, also the Moscow Patriarchate uh, made saints of Nicholas II and his whole family. So this is not, and we've heard it through through some of the activities through Charles Bowsman in the United States. This is not an, an unserious thing. They're very focused on the idea of returning to a monarchy, at least the Russian Orthodox churches. And a lot of the leading propaganda edge of what the Russians have been showing the Ukrainians and the Americans have been run by the Konstantin Malofiev wing of the Russian Orthodox church. So, I mean, there's a, not only is there a, an actual commitment to try and do this return of the monarchy. There's a an operation featuring a Russian oligarch and a group of people that is now familiar to both Americans and Ukrainians who've done a pretty big job at trying to, you know, populate that idea into people's minds in the United States and in Ukraine and in Russia, for that matter. Well, I think this is one aspect of what in to the Putin regime is called technical opposition because. Putin himself is not a monarchist because that would mean that he would have to share or give up power to somebody else, even symbolically. And that's something he could never do. And so I would put the imperialist monarchist uh, wing as a technical opposition. They're typified by people like uh, Igor Strelkov, or actually that's Strelkov is his code name. Uh, Igor uh, Gherkin is his real name. Mm -hmm. And uh, he was one of the leaders of the Crimea invasion. And then when the invasion went into Donbass, uh, he led the attack on Slovyansk. He was also the first person to announce a shooting down MH17. He announced it as a great victory of shooting down a Ukrainian plane and then went quiet when it was realized it was the airline. Yeah. He's a monarchist. And he's actually still alive, and he's tolerated mm. in Russia as this idea of a technical opposition. He criticizes Putin, but not far enough. So I would put the monarchists in the same category as I would put the communists, who are also a technical opposition. Putin's not a communist either. And don't forget that if we look at the last two weeks, 
Russia has moved very quickly from an authoritarian regime to a totalitarian one. Mm -hmm. And it's like, well, we have to keep up with the times. And if the monarchist movement or if the communist movement or any of these technical oppositions step out of line, their days are numbered. Understood. Uh, Because... It's true. It could be a good way for Putin to stay in power, you know, judging by the fact that democracy is... for an opportunity. But let me use a term that uh, Ukrainians know about the kind of figure that Putin is. Mm. They have a term called Vojd, V-O-Z-H-D. And this is a figure with religious connotations, with monarchical connotations, but also dictatorial the unquestioned leader. Mm-hmm. So the closest word, a word we're familiar in German, would be Führer, the leader who is the father of the nation and the guiding light for all the people. Mm-hmm. And the term for that in Russia is Vojd. And by the way, if you tell this to a Russian, they get very offended because it implies that they are serfs as mm-hmm. they were before the 20th century, before the Vojd. So back to the royal wedding here. So two-day extravaganza mm-hmm. happened last year. will feature a reception at the St. Petersburg Ethnographic Museum, as well as next-day brunch at the Konstantinovsky Palace, which will also include an auction and live performance by Queen Sophia of Spain, who was present at George's christening. Okay. Will be in attendance, as well as Princess Leia of Belgium were there, and Sheikh Mohammed bin Hamad bin Khalifa Al Thani, which is the Qatari prince, I believe. That's interesting. And uh, it says here that born in Madrid, the Grand Duke has spent the majority of his life living in Spain and France and was educated at Oxford. He first visited the ancestral homeland in 1992 and now lives in Moscow, where he works on philanthropic projects, interestingly enough. It also says in this other page, which I don't have here, is that the entire event was catered for by none other than Prigozhin the Putin chef. So Putin's Putin's oligarch chef has also been in charge of doing a whole lot of propaganda for the world and screwing people's minds as well as running the IRA. He did one other thing that he did. He has another thing that we can assign to him. But amongst other things, he is his chef, apparently, and he catered the entire event for the new returning Romanov. But it's interesting. I thought it was just fascinating that all of that is happening at the same time. And then you've got you know, the Romanovs, like Catherine the Great, had a special meaning for this part of the world that they called Novorossio. And so there might be, you know, as we looked at yesterday, there was a warm water port theory that I presented. Now there's maybe a historical theory to why that warm water port might be so important and why, in fact, that it might also be supported by some of the monarchical tendencies of the Russian Orthodox Church. It's worth thinking about. I say that because of the strategy involved. Like if, if that's really what they're going for, if they don't really want, if they want Kiev, obviously, but if they can't get Kiev, would this be the second prize? Would this be something where he would be happy to hunker down and feel like he can control this whole area all the way down from Luhansk to Odessa, linking up to Transnistria, providing a return of this so-called land of Novorossiya? That is his stated goal. If that is his stated goal, strategically, you've got to look at this war a little differently, I think, um, in terms of where he's putting in the, the bulk of his tension, at least, if not of his firepower. Plus, it's also quite easy for him to do because he's got an amphibian, you know, he's got a navy. 
<laughs> for him to really take that rest of that, it's not very hard. You know, he's got to go to Odessa with some sort of amphibian force and he can probably take it. So, you know, I think it's something worth thinking about. I'm not sure that it's, it changes the calculus that much. I'm not a military person, but I do think it's interesting that that might be what their goal is, as this large swath down or this land bridge. And of course, it's not something that Ukrainians can entertain in any way. Not only should they not have to give any new territory up because, of course, not. This war crime has been committed. But, you know, any claims towards Luhansk and Donetsk must be completely rejected at this point. I mean, there cannot be any more Russian intervention in, in, in Ukrainian territory at all once this war is over. Mm-hmm. Well, I see this as looking at the war from the aggressor's perspective. Mm. In fact, what the Putin regime will do is take anything they can and then rewrite history to say that's what they wanted all along. So, for example, eight years ago, they managed to take Crimea, and then they said, oh, it's always been Russian, and we're annexing it. And they managed to take just parts of Donetsk and Luhansk, and they said, oh, these are people's republics that we are supporting. And if they manage to take anything else, they may call it Novorossiya, they may call it something else, but it's not the point. I think we should take a look at this from the defender's point of view. If you look at it from the defenders, say, what's going on in Crimea? Well, this is the homeland of the Crimean Tatar people. They are the autochthonous people there. And what they see is a continuation of the genocide of Stalin, the deportation of the Crimean Tatars from 1944. Look at it from the Ukrainian perspective of all the areas in the east there especially. This is a continuation of the Holodomor, the famine genocide of 1932-33. And people say history is written by the winners. Well, Putin is not the winner yet. And in fact, he's going to lose. I agree with you. And until then, we should do what the experts in Ukraine have been teaching us about how to deal with fake news. Because things like Novorossiya and Crimea being annexed and these people's republics in the east, they're all fake news. And the way to do it is we start with the truth and we say what's really going on. Then we present this false narrative and we pick it apart as we do it and then we restate the truth. That is the way that we frame this war and that is the way we're going to win it. But you don't think that uh, he, you're not saying that, that this is not what Putin is doing. I mean, it's he stated things that he said he's doing in much the same way as what he said. It, it doesn't mean it's right. I'm just saying this is what he said he's doing. But I'm saying that he's trying he'll to do, do anything. If, he's, if he sees it as something that his people will pick up or something that will dismay his enemies. You know, I think so I, I view it slightly it, it differently part- in that I think it's important to know that this might be his objective. Because otherwise you might look at this part of the world and say, oh, it's just the eastern part of Ukraine. He's already had some of that. Well... You know, God knows what that is. At least Kiev is going to be okay, you know, because that's where the, all the attention is. When in fact, I think we should be pointing out to is what he's trying to do along the coastline, which is basically strip away Ukraine's coastline and how incredibly damaging that would be to the Ukrainian economy, but also to, you know, ridiculous it is, how it is absolutely insane to be trying to truncate a country's coastline off it. I mean, it's not acceptable. And I think 
What worries me is that people are saying that cities like the Mariupol are not strategically important, when in fact they are very strategically important to him. It's exactly what he's trying to do, is to capture this entire zone, I think. And if he's trying to capture that entire zone for whatever reasons, trade route reasons, monarchical reasons, or just so he can sell something to his population at home, who cares? There needs to be greater attention about the fact that this is not territory that he can claim. I mean, that none of this territory exactly. is, is claimable. We need and to be clear yeah. that any territory beyond the Russian Federation yeah. is hands off. Yes. All and, of it. Yeah. And it's never had any, even at the height of Russian occupation of those territories, it still only had a tiny, tiny, tiny minority of Russian, actual Russians in there. As much as they like to claim that there's a large amount of Russian speakers there, it's actually still very small compared to the number of people that are, you know, the Ukrainians there by far outnumbered the ethnic Russians there. So there's no claim to any of this. I think they should be, be trying to get Crimea back. I'm not sure there's much chance of that because, you know, who knows? They should be trying for that, at least arguing for that. And I think that we need to just, you know, remind people that this is going to be, if this is going to be where the war is waged, if this continues to be an insurgency of some sort, that's not acceptable. I mean, it's not acceptable that the Ukrainian people have to have their seaport access choked off for years to come. I mean, it's another absolutely rational reason, I think, for foreign intervention here, where you can't just let this go on continuously into some sort of insurgency. It would be impossible. So that's just, I'm not trying to present his side of events. I just think it is kind of interesting. That's, I do think that's what it looks like to me he's doing. All right, let's take some comments here from people and see what they are trying to do, I should say. So somebody saying that, Andrew again, is saying here that Russia has admitted that they are using conscripts. This happened today, I think, that they admitted they conscripted yeah. thousands of men and that they wanted to hire mercenaries. Will those be from Eric Prince? Eric Prince being the Blackwater guy, although he has worked with Wagner or Wagner. I don't think they get along very well, by the way, but I think he has, they have worked alongside each other. I'd be very surprised if Wagner troops weren't already in Ukraine. Uh, that would be, I'm sure they're There's there. already at least a thousand and they're yeah. in the Kiev offensive. Yeah, so they must be, yeah, exactly. So there was also talk about him bringing some people in from Syria, which I thought was, you know, if, if he's concerned about any weapons or troops coming in from other countries, why is he bringing people in from Syria? It seems insane. I don't think he's had very, very much success there, but it's interesting that that's what he's trying to do. If we put these three groups together, if we take Wagner Group, although it has another name, we're talking about a private military company from Russia. Mm -hmm. In other words, they're Russian soldiers, but they're mercenaries. Mm -hmm. We take the Syrians, who are basically terrorist forces under control of Putin, mm -hmm. and we also take the uh, Kadyrites. These are uh, uh, Chechen. Chechen soldiers under the command of Ramzan Kadyrov, who is uh, Putin's warlord in uh, Chechnya. So... These three categories, the Wagnerians, the Syrians, and the Kadyrites, are terrorist forces. They're there to commit civilian atrocities. They're there to do things like uh, trigger Assassinate this uh, chemical is attack. Yeah. That's going to happen. That's yeah. what they're there for. Yeah. They were the ones that were sent in. Those, these are the Chechen guys that were sent in to try and assassinate Zelensky on a few days ago. And there was you know, several attempts on his life in just those first few days of the war. You're absolutely right. These are the, the very, very most dangerous people on this battlefield right now in terms of what they might do. Yeah, well, they're dangerous, but they're not the most effective fighters. But right. I just want to mention to people who may not know that there's a reason why Ukrainians call them Kadyrites. So these are Chechens who are loyal to Ramzan Akadyrov, the vicious warlord in Chechnya. But there's actually a Chechen battalion fighting for Ukraine. So these are very uh, good fighters from Chechnya 
who were part of the resistance against the Russian invasion in the first and second Chechen wars and now have an entire battalion in Ukraine fighting for the Ukrainian side. So the Ukrainians are always careful not to call these uh, men Chechens, but to call them Kadyrites. Interesting you say that. I also have video here, and I'm trying to find it, of what I believe are Belarusians fighting on behalf of the Ukrainians as well. There was video of that today, yeah. that they've joined the There's legion. There's hundreds of them. Yeah, so they've joined the yeah. legion of international fighters to fight against Russia. Uh, in fact, there are probably more Belarusians fighting against Russia than they are fighting for Russia on the battlefield in Ukraine today. So, and there's another part of language. We should call the uh, soldiers from Belarus who are fighting against Ukraine. We should call them Lukashenko's troops, which right. is what they are. Right. Right. The, we are seeing a multitude of foreign forces arriving there from all over the world, which is also another interesting factor. You know, people are getting Ukrainian citizenship because they are. That is, in fact, what they're being offered if they want to come there to fight, and that's being expedited. It does seem like the world is putting, you know, these individuals around the world are willing to put themselves in the line of danger. As you point out from the start of the show, and I don't want to lose sight of that horrific tragedy that has now occurred in Mariupol, where we've seen, you know, probably thousands of people died in the last few days. We've only got a thousand as officially accounted for, but it looks like it's going to be much worse. But the atrocity that happened at the maternity hospital there and the children's hospital where at least 17 people are injured, but there are fears that other people and babies might be buried under the rubble. This is the kind of bad men, depraved, inhumane, intolerable activity that if there's any doubt about where Putin fits into the scale of morality or in the world and how he should be regarded, this is just all you need to know about him. The man is absolutely depraved. He's a madman to be going after the most innocent of victims here using a thousand pound bomb and for no good reason. I mean, just no good reason. These people are, didn't even have food or water, never mind anything else. We need to surge a humanitarian effort into Mariupol with absolute urgency. It seems that there is such a lot of suffering. There's not enough water. There's not enough food. It's cold. They were excited that it was snowing the other day or today, I think, uh, because they were able to use the snow for water. I mean, we're talking about people living in barbaric conditions because this man has decided that he you know, wants to swath a territory or wants to inflict pain on a country. I mean, it's not acceptable in this day and age. And he needs to hear it very clearly after we, these scenes come out. We've seen some of the pictures tonight, but there'll be more of the devastation in Mariupol. It's going to be a very interesting to see how the world, you know, it's one thing talking about it. It's a whole other thing when you're seeing the pictures. I've seen that before in various parts of where these kind of atrocities have taken place again by Putin in places like Syria. Last word from you, Michael. Yes, it's important to say these things, but it's more important to do things. This war will not stop on its own. Putin will never stop until he is stopped. These atrocities will never end on their own. They have to be ended. And I think the most important thing, if you're going to give me the last word, it is decide what we must do, which is to stop this then figure out how to do it. All right, let's leave it there. Thank you very much for joining us tonight, Michael McKay, at MHMCK is how you can find Michael. Uh, I was hoping to bring you that interview, which is a really beautiful interview from someone who's a 26 year old in Ukraine who's encountered a remarkable set of circumstances that she finds herself in. I will have it ready for you guys on Friday. It's worth your time if you'll join us on Friday on, uh, on the after show. Until then, we wish you a very good night. Don't forget you can support Narrative by going to patreon.com 
forward slash narrative. We really do appreciate everyone's support. Uh, it's helping us tremendously right now. You know, our audience numbers are stronger than ever. And we really appreciate everyone's support, both uh, as viewers and as your support as patrons on uh, patreon.com forward slash narrative. On that note, thank you, Michael, and uh, have a good night, everybody. Thank you. Good night. Narrative is made possible by viewers like you. Join today and support truly independent journalism at patreon.com forward slash narrative. That's patreon.com forward slash narrative.